we greet some of you Floridians. Wouldn't want to live down there. Too much bad weather. <laughs> but, but a little reminder here. Uh, we have a children's church. And we have children in there. But again, a reminder. Don't send a child to pick up one of your children. We only release children to mamas and daddies. <laughs> and another word of reminder, after service, go get your child, you know, because that's a good thing to do. <laughs> they need to know you love them. All right. We're this morning, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 19. Uh, David is blessed to have a faithful friend in Saul's son, Jonathan. And he also has a faithful wife, Saul's daughter. And these are both Saul's children. And we got to kind of bear that in mind as we go through this. Jonathan, uh, in his own right, has been a great warrior. Uh, he is a... Uh, He's one of those guys like Caleb in the Old Testament that uh, I really appreciate. I really admire them. And Jonathan loves God and is willing to set aside his own right to be Israel's next king. For Jonathan, he sees something that not many can see and that God's anointing hand is upon David. David's own family can't see that, but Jonathan could. And Jonathan also sees how his father is bitterly jealous against David. And David is loved by Jonathan as if hits his own soul and we all love ourselves and we all take care of ourselves but Jonathan loves David as much as he loves himself and that's a powerful statement of the character of Jonathan Jonathan develops his love for David because he loves his Lord so much and that's, that's the thing you don't see here, that Jonathan loves God to the point that he can see his anointed, even though it means uh, taking a back seat, a place of second place. He's willing to do that because of his love for God. He's willing to surrender his heritage as Saul's son. He's willing to forego being king of Israel. Michal, Saul's daughter, she's a loving, faithful wife, and she chooses David above the traditional love and obedience to her father that was prevalent in that society in that day. In that culture, at that time, the commands of the patriarch father held great weight. You obeyed dad regardless. But Saul wanted to kill David, her husband. And 
she was expected to obey her dad's desires. Not only is Saul a father, he's king of Israel, and it was highly unusual to go against your dad, and especially if your dad is king. Yet Saul's own children, Jonathan and Michal, they risk death by disobeying their dad. And uh, it's not said in those words, but you remember Saul wanted to kill his own son, Jonathan, because he had made an oath that no man was to touch food or something while they chased their enemy. And Jonathan did without realizing his dad had made that oath. And Saul was willing to kill his own son, but he was stopped by more uh, cooler heads, you might say. But Saul, in the early verses of chapter 19, he once again tries to kill David. And David is in his household because of this evil spirit that comes upon Saul. And David would play the harp, and he would sing, and it would calm Saul down. But Saul, he throws a spear at David, and David <clears throat> avoids his spear, and then David flees and he runs to Ramah where Samuel the prophet resides. And along with the prophets in training, this is kind of a monastery for prophets, I guess. So let's read the passage of 1 Samuel 19, verse 19 through 24. That was told Saul saying, take note, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the group of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as their leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And when Saul was told, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. Then Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. Then he also went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Suku. And so he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? And someone said, Indeed, they are at Naoth in Ramah. So he went there to, Rea, uh, to Naoth in Ramah. Then the Spirit of God was upon him also. And he went out and prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked all that day and all that night. And therefore they say, is Saul also among the prophets? A little bit of peculiar behavior there. Some advisor to Saul has told him uh, info concerning David and Saul wants to go and he wants to kill David and for David is his enemy and David is at Ramah and Saul sends troops or it says messengers to go and take David take him as a prisoner but Saul's intent is to kill David these men find David along with Samuel and Samuel is there leading a group of prophets 
And when Saul's messengers find them, we have a strange thing happen. God's Spirit comes upon these messengers, these troops, and they prophesy along with Samuel's prophets. These messengers, three groups of them, sent by Saul, and they all prophesy. Now, to prophesy in the broad sense of the term is to speak forth of the goodness of God. So that's more than likely what they're doing. I don't think they're necessarily telling future events, but they are telling of the goodness of God. And Saul, he's perplexed by all of this. And these ordinary soldiers, and they're prophesying. And Saul, contrary to his personal desires, has to check this out, and Saul finds himself prophesying as he travels to Naoth. And then it's said of Saul that he was numbered with the prophets. And that's rough enough to accept, you know, hear this guy that's got murder in his heart, he's speaking forth of the goodness of God. Uh, but then, then he does the peculiar thing. He strips off his clothes, okay? And he lays down naked all day and all night before the true prophet of God, Samuel. That is peculiar. <laughs> of Samuel, God said he would not allow any of the words of Samuel, his prophet, to fall to the ground. In other words, God is going to make sure Samuel's words are fulfilled. But what's going on here with Saul prophesying? Well, we have a New Testament example of that in John chapter 7. The Pharisees and the chief priest sent officers to the temple to arrest Jesus. The multitudes are beginning to turn to Jesus in, uh, in large numbers, and they begin to believe, they're starting to believe that Jesus just might be Messiah. And the people are asking, is Jesus not the one our leaders seek to kill? And then let me read you the verse, John seven twenty six. But look. He speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? So the people are asking. Our leaders are trying to kill a man, this prophet, and it's quite possible that he is Messiah, the Christ. Jesus is declaring openly that he has been sent by God his father, and no one dares lay a hand on him for saying these things that would be considered blasphemous if it's not true. But Jesus says, my hour is not yet come, so I can't, you know, ascend to your throne that you want me to. So the temple guard is sent to arrest Jesus, sent by those who should be looking for Messiah but have set their unbelieving hearts against Jesus. Believing 
is not a matter of sorting out the facts and saying, well, that's true and that isn't true, so here's what I'm going to believe. Believing comes from the heart. Our hearts dictate to us what we believe. Look at a child. All you have to do is look at a child and see how easy it is for a child to accept and believe in Jesus. And Jesus says, you've got to come to me as a little child. So believing is not what we would consider sorting out the facts and then going with the facts, but it's an attitude of heart. So these temple guards come to arrest Jesus. Again, they're sent out by the Pharisees and the chief priests, and they have hard hearts, these Pharisees and chief priests. And this is right in the middle of the Passover feast. And Jesus is openly declaring, I come from God, my Father. Jesus will stand up in the temple during this time and also say, if anyone thirst, if you're thirsty for God, come to me and drink. And then he says, and out of your hearts will flow rivers of living water. The people are believing in Jesus. They're declared truly this is the prophet of God the Messiah, this Passover in Jerusalem, it comes to an end when the officers returning to the chief priests and Pharisees telling them, here's the words they return with, no one ever spoke like this man. They couldn't follow their orders to arrest Jesus because they're hearing truth, and that truth will not allow them to follow their orders from the chief priests. Bear that in mind. Now go back to Saul, who's at Naoth Ramah, where King Saul is now behaving in a strange, humbling way. Saul, he has pursued David to kill him. And Saul, who's been tormented by evil spirit, now has the spirit of God come upon him where Saul begins to prophesy and declare the good virtues of God. And he's doing this naked. Strange. <laughs> Put some clothes on, Saul. But anyway, Saul has stripped himself of his kingly garments. And that was a big thing in that culture. And there's lots of purple laying on the ground right there next to Saul. And the Spirit of God has Saul's complete attention. And he strips off his clothes, his beautiful robes, his kingly garments. And he also disarms himself. He takes off his sword in its sheath and lays it aside. God is requiring this of Saul 
Israel's king. Strip off your clothes, Saul, and lay down. Lay down on the ground. Lay there for a full day and a night. And by your own mouth, Saul, declare the goodness of God. Totally contrary to what Saul was. Yet God requires it of him. In Proverbs 21.1, we read an interesting passage. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wants. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. God in his majesty and his sovereignty will humble mankind when he desires. And in particular, he will humble kings when he desires. In the book of Daniel, chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar experiences God's power and majesty. Daniel 4, 28 through 34, a short passage, I'll read it to you. And, and all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, that's right away, by the way, a voice fell from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you out from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall make your, they shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men, and he ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair had grown like feathers, and, and his nails like bird claws. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar. He's walking about his palace and he's admiring all that he has in his great power and strength. He's admiring his kingdom. And he's also very prideful and he's lifted up with pride with his great ability that he has to rule and reign in Babylon. Scripture speaks of Nebuchadnezzar as the greatest king to ever have lived. Here's the greatest king that ever lived, and that includes today, by the way, according to Scripture. And when his pride is met with God's strength, 
when they collide, a voice from heaven declares to Nebuchadnezzar, here's your fate. Your kingdom has departed from you, and you will be driven into the fields to eat grass like an animal, and in particular, like an ox. Now, some of you know I have cows. A cow also eats grass. <laughs> and it's time for a cow analogy. When my cows are out there grazing and it's real quiet and no wind blowing or anything, you can actually hear that cow ripping grass up. They tear it up. In fact, Lori asked me one time, do cows have teeth? I said, listen to them graze sometimes. They got teeth. <laughs> but Nebuchadnezzar is out in a pasture grazing. You got to realize he's grazing. He's eating grass. Just like an ox. And this is not a momentary thing. This goes on for what I believe. It says seven seasons, and I think it's seven literal years. But anyway, seven seasons, Nebuchadnezzar is out there eating grass in a pasture, and it's sometimes cold. It's sometimes windy. It will rain sometimes, and then there's other times when there's drought and you have to look for grass. And until God is through teaching Nebuchadnezzar his lesson, until God allows Nebuchadnezzar to return to sanity. Now, can you imagine <laughs> the thoughts that go through Nebuchadnezzar's head when his understanding returned? This is not looking good. I'm out here with all the animals eating grass. I'm not looking much like a king today. <laughs> I'm sort of unkept. I could sure use a bath and a shave. <laughs> but the first thing in the life of Nebuchadnezzar is he must bless and praise the Most High before he does anything else. And he must praise and give praise to God for his everlasting kingdom that he is simply a part of. God in his scriptures tells us that he will not share his glory with any, any man. And God goes out of his way to humble the most powerful king who has ever lived. God also humbles the king of Israel, Saul. Now, great stories, right? Peculiar stories. Saul's laying naked, prophesying. Nebuchadnezzar's eating grass out in a field. But just think on this. If God is willing to humble kings in such a devastating, profound way, who are prideful, what about little old saints like you and I? 
You think God's willing to humble you? Maybe you have been humbled. I certainly have been humbled in my days. I was listening to one pastor who was speaking about how the Lord humbled him. And he said, I'd just give a sermon, and I was sort of proud of that sermon. It was a good one, <laughs> you know. And he said, and he was up on a, a little stage with about four steps down. He says, and I'm sitting there thinking, I hit the nail on the head today. I, I give a good one. He trips and falls on his face going down the steps. I haven't fell yet. <laughs> but God has a way of humbling each of us. And you know what I'm talking about. Because if you're a human being, you have been humbled. You've been humbled by your behavior. You've been humbled by things you've said. God has his way of humbling us. I like our president, but he's a very prideful man. I fully, write this one down, expect God to humble President Trump in a way that only God can humble him. He's a prideful man. He says boastful things. God will humble him in his own way. And he will humble our president, and he will know that it's God's humbling of him. We're told in Scripture we are to humble ourselves before God. How do you humble yourself? True humility is looking at yourself with a proper opinion not a good one not necessarily a bad one but a proper opinion of yourself that is humility our society in my brief observations of it we elevate sports heroes we elevate actors Think about that one. Someone that's pretending to be something else, we elevate them. Okay. We elevate news commentators, rock stars. There's a story told about Muhammad Ali. If you remember Muhammad Ali, he died a little while back. But he was a very, very prideful man. He has gone to Africa to fight a fight. He won that fight, and he's on board a jet airliner out of Africa back to the United States. The stewardess has told him repeatedly to fasten his seat belt. He responds, Superman don't need no seat belt. His stewardess replied, Superman don't need no airplane. <laughs> and how apropos. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Scripture tells us God gives grace to the humble. And don't miss this, but God resists the proud.
Humility before God is a very pleasing thing before God. I love to see a truly humble person. Not one that just talks humility, but one who is humble. And I admire that quality in others, but I find it so hard to apply to myself. May God help me to be humble. Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer.